This is the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at uh, Vanderbilt University uh, School of Medicine. Um, the topic that I'd like to talk about today is that of hypercalcemia. Uh, we had this um, um, at a, came up in a discussion recently, and it is something that you typically will see uh, on board exams, uh, in-service exams, and so even though it's um, high or, or potentially malignant levels of hypercalcemia, is not something we see commonly. It's something that you need to be aware of, of what it is and, and how it um, manifests and what is the appropriate treatment for it. Just as a general rundown, hypercalcemia uh, is really defined as a uh, ionized calcium of greater than 10.5 milligrams per deciliter. It will often manifest itself with an altered metal status with confusion, lethargy, psychosis, and, and, and even coma. Patients will often be hyporeflexic and will have muscle weakness. Other symptoms would include constipation, shortening of the QT interval. That's not something we're often talking about. We're often talking about prolongation of the QT interval, as well as pancreatitis. Now, patients who have chronic hypercalcemia, they could also have things like bone changes and something called band keratopathy, not something that we typically would see in an intensive care unit. Uh, and patients may have underlying disease such as hyperparathyroidism, but probably more commonly something like malignancy, uh, particularly um, uh, in a, a surgical ICU. Other conditions that can cause malignant uh, or uh, dangerous hypercalcemia is conditions such as sarcoidosis and vitamin A toxicity. As we've already said, hypercalcemia, is, as, as far as the definition goes, is defined by an ionized calcium greater than 10.5 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, but severe hypercalcemia, uh, will, will, uh, with, say, an altered metal status, is a medical emergency. Patients with a, a calcium level of that level will be admitted to the intensive care unit uh, for close monitoring, intravascular fluid resuscitation, and treatment uh, of the hypercalcemia with some of the medications we're going to talk about. Now, as we've said, hypercalcemia that is that severe and dangerous resulting in altered metal status and, and uh, symptoms is often the result of a malignant process, uh, typical solid tumors, lymphoma, and uh, multiple myeloma. Other conditions of uh, mild hypercalcemia include, include granulomatous disease, such as sarcoidosis, uh, tuberculosis, and fungal diseases, as well as hyperparathyroidism. Now, whenever we're talking about calcium metabolism, whether it's hypercalcemia or hypocalcemia, we have to remember the the um, metabolism of calcium is really a, a flux or a balance between the gastrointestinal tract where calcium um, is... Um, absorbed the assistance of vitamin uh, D, uh, the bone where the majority of the calcium stores are in the body, um, um, uh, the kidneys where vitamin D is, for lack of a better descriptor, activated, as well as the extracellular space where the ionized calcium is residing. Hypercalcemia is the result of a failure of the regulatory mechanisms of calcium between all of these uh, various sites, as well as the inability to suppress parathyroid hormone. Now, parathyroid hormone, as you remember, activates or stimulates osteoclasts and mobilizes calcium from the bone. Vitamin D, as we've already mentioned, helps with the absorption of calcium from the gastrointestinal tract. Now, if we look at the hypercalcemia that's associated with just uh, a misbehaving parathyroid, we'll know that that's either from an adenoma or hyperplasia. Uh, and that's a, it's, uh, typically a, a talk on parathyroid disease as, as a general surgical talk. And the classic uh, descriptors that were used uh, for people who had hyperparathyroidism are stones, bones, uh, stones, bones, 
and abdominal groans. Because uh, people will manifest with uh, renal stones, bone pain, and other symptoms of hypercalcemia, which include things like constipation and abdominal pain. But uh, in this era where the acumen of the diagnostician physician has almost died because of such a heavy reliance on, on laboratory and radiographic and ultrasound uh, assessments, uh, most of these uh, cases of hypercalcemia are picked up on just routine chemistries where somebody gets a, a calcium level, either to evaluate calcium or uh, unintentionally picks it up as part of a broader screening assessment. Now, as we said that uh, a, a hyperparathyroidism from either a, a parathyroid adenoma uh, or parathyroid hyperplasia uh, is picked up if you have the elevated calcium and you also are able to pick, uh, obtain a elevated parathyroid hormone level. Now we've already established that the most common cause of hypercalcemia uh, that we're going to see in an intensive care unit that's going to require us to treat the hypercalcemia is typically related to a malignancy. And there's a lot of reasons why we can see elements or, or partial elements of hypercalcemia in a patient who is experiencing a malignancy. But perhaps the most important cause is a release of a, a peptide by the tumor that has homology with parathyroid hormone. And this has been called the parathyroid hormone-related peptide. The effects of parathyroid hormone-related peptide are similar to those of parathyroid hormone in that it causes increased serum calcium, decreased serum phosphorus. And you can see hypercalcemia from this parathyroid hormone-related peptide in cases of bronchogenic carcinoma and a variety of other malignancies. There are other causes associated with cancer conditions that can result uh, in hypercalcemia other than this parathyroid hormone-related peptide. And this would include things such as uh, uh, bone metastasis as well as bony, with bony destruction. And as you're having the bone mets, you're having a, a breakdown of the bone resulting in hypercalcemia as well as the effects of cytokines and including interleukins and TGF-beta. Changing gears, uh, we have uh, abnormally produced vitamin D, which can also be a contributor uh, to uh, the development of hypercalcemia. Excessive administration or ingestion of vitamin T, D uh, can cause hypercalcemia, but this does not occur immediately. It's not something that occurs rapidly. Toxic doses of vitamin A may also cause hypercalcemia. Uh, we've mentioned granulomatous diseases are associated uh, the uh, hypercalcemia and the way that granulomatous diseases such as sarcoidosis will uh, result in hypercalcemia is an increased production of 125-dihydroxycholcalciferol, or that's 125-dihydroxyvitamin D. I'm just amazed that I can remember that from my biochemistry days. And what happens in these granulomatous diseases is that cells within the granulomas, typically macrophages, will end up in an increased production of 125-hydroxy um, of vitamin D. And we've already mentioned that sarcoid is probably the best-known entity that causes hypercalcemia, but also other conditions uh, such as uh, tuberculosis and fungal diseases will also result in hypercalcemia. What's interesting is that in some of these granulomatous diseases, what's probably more common than the hypercalcemia, i.e. the elevated calcium in the blood, is hypercalciuria, or elevated calcium in the urine. Acute pancreatitis is another cause uh, of hypercalce uh, hypercalcemia, as well as uh, rhabdomyolysis. Milk alkali syndrome from ingestion of calcium and antacids by a patient with renal failure um, is a, uh, other, another cause. And what's interesting about milk alkali syndrome is typically uh, it's one of the rare conditions where you see the combination of both an elevated calcium and an elevated uh, phosphorus. So you have hypercalcemia and hyperphosphatemia. Hyperthyroidism uh, uh, is another rare cause of hypercalcemia. 
which means since it's rare and, and we'll probably never see it clinically or detect it clinically, it means it'll probably be on a board exam. And the use of thiazide diuretics actually decrease uh, renal calcium excretion. Uh, and, and it may be a contributing factor. That's an interesting point is that if you have a patient, we see this done a lot in the intensive care units, that a, a patient who uh, is hypercalcemia, you know, they've got a low calcium, you're replacing calcium, and they need diuretics, and you've got them on Lasix, uh, it may be a situation since you know um, uh, that uh, you could decrease renal excretion uh, with uh, use of thiazides. Now, the we typically think that immobilization will elevate the uh, serum calcium. That's not accurate, but what immobilization does, it exacerbates some of these other conditions we've talked about. So it's not a direct cause and effect. Well, how do these patients present? What are some of their symptoms? Well, they can have lethargy or psychosis. Uh, they may develop absent uh, deep tendon reflexes. I don't know when is the last time I checked somebody's deep tendon reflexes. Uh, and they can also have muscle weakness. Uh, major complaints can be constipation. Uh, and you'd be amazed how... Uh, uh, a alteration of a person's bowel movements will result in the development of complaints. Patients can actually have polyuria and impaired urinary um, uh, concentration ability or basically nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. And the nephrogenic diabetes insipidus can, can be consequences of uh, hypercalcemia. If you get an EKG in these patients, you may actually see a shortened QT interval. That's not something we talk about much, our shortened QT intervals. And if a patient's receiving digitalis, uh, arrhythmias uh, can result. Hypercalcemia is a known potential cause of pancreatitis, and it is a known potential cause of peptic ulcer disease. We mentioned that you really suspect that anybody's got malignancies, particularly those of breast, prostate, lung, kidney, liver, and all the head and neck tumors. Patients who have multiple myeloma may also have hypercalcemia, as well as the granulomatous diseases that we already mentioned, like sarcoid, TB, and fungal infections. Well, how do we make the laboratory diagnosis? Well, that's to be pretty straightforward. We get a serum calcium level. If it's greater than 10.5, you have your diagnosis. Other laboratory tests that you should get is certainly looking at serum phosphorus as well as your electrolytes and creatinine. If you think the parathyroid may be involved, certainly getting a parathyroid hormone level. Next, we're going to talk about uh, the approach to treatment of a patient who we will see in the intensive care unit with hypercalcemia. Who do we treat uh, with severe hypercalcemia? Are those whose calcium levels 12 or 13, certainly, and any patient who has symptoms, especially if you've got alterations in metal status or seizures. And uh, if you're dealing with alterations in metal status or seizures, you need to be treating those people expeditiously and treating them aggressively. What is your objective of treatment? Well, that's pretty straightforward. You want to lower their serum calcium. Uh, and typically this is done by increasing the amount of calcium uh, excreted by the kidneys as well as the decrease the uh, uh, production or the mobilization of new calcium from the bone stores as well as uh, trying to slow down absorption from the GI tract. There's really four elements of your approach or a four-prong attack when you're taking care of somebody who you're treating with severe hypercalcemia. First of all, you want to expand the extracellular volume. So we do that with volume. And then we give the patient Lasix. Seems counterintuitive, but again, we're trying to treat it almost like a, a toxidrum. So elevate the volume, give the patient Lasix, and then the use of calcitronin and permidronate. And we'll talk about what those drugs are and, and why we use them. Now, let's talk about how calcium moves around through the kidneys. Now, unbound calcium is filtered through the kidneys, and it's largely reabsorbed. But calcium reabsorption is tied to sodium reabsorption in the proximal portion of the nephron. 
as well as the loop of Henle. Okay, so the calcium is filtered through the nephron. It's floating through the proximal tubule. It's going to go where sodium is going to go in the proximal portion of the nephron. Now, if we expand the patient's extracellular volume with normal saline, this decreases the passive proximal reabsorption of calcium. Why? We're putting more salt into the nephron. And loop diuretics are given both to prevent volume overload as well as to inhibit the active sodium uh, reabsorption. And since we're inhibiting active sodium uh, reabsorption, we're also inhibiting passive calcium reabsorption in the loop of Henle. Now, in cases of severe hypercalcemia, and we're talking about patients who are in the intensive care unit, their serum calcium, you know, their INS calcium is you know, 12 and, and, and they're, they're CZ or they have altered metal status, we need to give them aggressive saline because remember, calcium follows the sodium. So start an IV of 0.9 normal saline and run it at a high rate of about two to 300 milliliters per hour. Of course, we're talking about adults here. Now, clearly, you need to judge your volume resuscitation of these patients based on their underlying condition. So if somebody has congestive heart failure or, or pulmonary edema, uh, or excuse me, congestive heart failure, or they're elderly, they, they may not tolerate this kind of a volume without developing a pulmonary edema. And certainly, we're going to be giving the patient, we're going to be giving the patient Lasix as well. Give the Lasix in doses of about 20 to 60 milligrams every 2 to 6 hours. is whatever you need to maintain that urine output, as well as maintain that naturesis or the diuresis of sodium. You don't want to use thiazide diuretics in this case, because these drugs have a tendency to cause hypercalcemia, excuse me, hypercalcemia, and they inhibit the renal excretion of calcium in the distal tubule. Now, clearly, you know when you give somebody Lasix, well, what are the electrolytes that giving somebody Lasix is going to cause? Well, certainly, well, it causes problems with potassium, it causes problems with magnesium. So, as you're treating the patient with hypercalcemia, you need and you're giving them the 0.9 normal saline, you're giving them the Lasix, um, you're watching their volume status, you have to recognize that by giving them this kind of therapy, we're going to see drops in their potassium, drops in their magnesium. We need to be looking for those and we need to be replacing them as the situation requires. Now, majority of the calcium in the body uh, rests in the bone and we need to um, basically kind of decrease the mobilization of calcium uh, from the bone. Now, the biphosphonates are real effective for the management of hypercalcemia, and they have very low toxicity. In the biphosphonate, these drugs basically inhibit osteoclasts uh, for a prolonged period of time. What are osteoclasts? Remember, those are the cells uh, that, that are, are living in the bone. Now, this is not something that we in, in the intensive care unit are going to be able to do acutely to, to rapidly lower that calcium because these drugs really uh, begin to have an onset in about two days. You see their maximal effect of about a week. But most likely, the hypercalcemia isn't something that developed over four hours. It's something that developed over days. So what we want to do is once we get the calcium down or we're working to get the calcium down, we also need to be treating the underlying causes, how their calcium got to be 13 or 14. And using the biphosphonates, they're, they're, they're very successful, and the majority of the patients will have a return of their calcium to normal, uh, regardless of what was the cause of the hypercalcemia. Now, there are drugs called pimidronate and etidronate. Pimidronate is probably more effective because of its longer duration of action uh, and its effect of hypocalcemia. Pimidronate is typically given as a single dose. Uh, it's given IV typically over 24 hours, and about 60 to 100% of patients having normal uh, serum calcium levels about 10 to 13 days days later. Uh, so again, uh, if we admit a patient uh, to the intensive care unit tonight with hypercalcemia, 
the use of pomidronate is not going to uh, make us better tonight, but it is going to hopefully prevent us getting into this situation um, uh, again. Um, uh, you need to adjust the dose of the pomidronate uh, in patients who have renal insufficiency. Side effects of the pomidronate are, are relatively minor, and, and there are newer, cla- new, newer drugs in the class of biphosphonates uh, that actually even have oral agents uh, that are used mostly for the milder forms of uh, hypercalcemia. And these drugs are also used to prevent osteoporosis. Calcitonin uh, can also be given, um, and it's got a weight-based dose that's given intramuscularly. It has a slight and short-term effect, but uh, can be used in the initial phase of therapy for the treatment of hypercalcemia. It is non-toxic and acts most quickly of all these drugs uh, that alter uh, bone calcium metabolism. Calcitonin promotes renal excretion of the calcium. It actually helps dump the calcium, much like we're doing with the Lasix. It also inhibits the bone reabsorption and inhibits gut uh, absorption of calcium. So when we start looking at that 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 matrix of of calcium metabolism, calcitonin is great because it's really kind of working in multiple areas. It's helping us excrete the calcium like the Lasix and and the uh, saline is doing. It decreases the mobilization of calcium stores from the bone, and it also decreases the absorption of calcium from the GI tract. Now. Uh, we talked about giving the calcitonin early on through a single weight-based intramuscular dose, and it, it does uh, um, work well early on as initial therapy, but its effect does go away after a couple of days. And certainly by the time we start seeing that going away, the effects of drugs like the pomidronate or, or uh will you know, drugs classified as the biphosphonates, will start to exert their effect. Plecomycin is another drug that blocks the reabsorption of uh, calcium from the bone. You can use it basically in any patient who has hypercalcemia, but it's most commonly used in patients who have hypercalcemia uh, secondary to malignancies. It's given as a slow weight-based dose, given over 3 to 6 hours, and you'll see a decline of calcium of about 24 hours, and it normalizes in about a little bit over half or about 60% of the patients. You do not want to be using plecomycin in patients who have renal insufficiency, liver insufficiency, or patients who have thrombocytopenia. Plecomycin is not used as much uh, as the biphosphonate drugs, uh, such as the uh, permidronate. You can hear some of my five children crying in the background. I apologize for that. I guarantee you there's no blood or broken bones involved. Uh, so when you look at our overall treatment of the patient who has hypercalcemia, um, you can see that we rely very heavy on the acute phase, particularly if those of us who work in intensive care units, on the use of having the kidneys, being able to get a diuresis going, be able to volume load them with saline, be able to give them furosemide, and basically have the calcium chase the uh, uh, sodium out of the body. But what do we do in a patient who can't tolerate uh, that kind of uh, aggressive volume resuscitation or a patient who has altered renal function and they're sitting there uh, with a calcium of, of 12 or 13 or symptomatic hypercalcemia. Well, then we need to really think about using uh, hemodialysis. In patients who have hypercalcemia uh, from elevated vitamin D, 
uh, in conditions such as granulomatous diseases and patients who say have multiple myeloma, corticosteroids may have a role in those patients. The corticosteroids probably decrease the absorption of calcium from the gut by interfering with vitamin D activation. Uh, therefore, since you're really relying on uh, altering vitamin D metabolism with the use of corticosteroids, you really can't use that as an acute method of uh, treating somebody who's got symptomatic hypercalcemia. You can use um, gallium nitrate, and uh, that works by inhibiting uh, bone reabsorption, but without affecting osteoclastic activity. Some people will talk about the use of sodium phosphate, because this has a predictable calcium-lowering effect, but what's what's not very popular about this kind of treatment is, and it's not very commonly used, is because it will result in precipitation of calcium phosphate in the soft tissues, and that's not a, uh, a good thing. So there we have a brief overview of the treatment of hypercalcemia, uh, and uh, this is uh, particularly the uh, Lasix uh, and uh, saline loading is something that I've commonly seen on exams, both in-service exams as well as board examinations. You've been listening mostly to the podcast Surgery IC Rounds as well as the uh, uh, crying and tirades of uh, some of my five children. Um, I do appreciate the download, and um, uh, we have further information on the um, uh, podcast on the podcast website, which is icrounds.com. Uh, my homepage is uh, burndoc.com, where we have articles and other um, educational materials, particularly for our residents. Thank you for downloading.